online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. The one thing I will say that actually did make sense to me, and this is why I started thinking maybe biodynamics isn't witchcraft, maybe there's something here, is talking about the the lunar calendar. And we're all very aware that the the moon has impact on big bodies of water. It affects our tides. You know, I know people often say like, oh, it's a full moon, the crazies will be out. Like people kind of do feel like the, the moon influences us in some way. And they were saying that they only prune the vines at certain points in the lunar calendar because it affects the water in the vine, so like the, the sap levels. So there are certain points in the lunar calendar where it, it's pulling the sap out. So if you prune, you'll find that the vines, it's called like the crying vine or the weeping vine, they have like little tears of sap where you've made the cuts. We know that the moon affects water, we can see it in the tides. We accept that without, without question now. So why wouldn't it affect something on a much, much smaller scale? And that was the point where I started thinking, actually, there is something here. Here at Virgin Wines, we believe that life's too short for boring wine, which is why we search the world for the most exciting independent winemakers and use thousands of our customer ratings to shape our range of premium quality exclusive wines. Head to virginwines.co.uk and start your wine journey with us today. Handpicked by us, loved by you. Today I am joined by wine buyer Sophie Lord. Sophie has been working in the wine industry for 15 years as a wine advisor and then as a wine buyer at Virgin Wines. She has studied with the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, known as the WSET, achieving distinction in levels two and three and is currently studying towards her diploma in wines. Sophie is fascinated by the way in which nature is connected to wine. When we see a finished bottle of wine in its nice packaging, labelled beautifully, we often forget that wine begins its journey in the vineyard. Picking good quality grapes at harvest is essential for a wine producer before they can even start thinking about making wine. But grapes and the vines are at the mercy of many natural elements year on year. The quality of grapes can be significantly affected by the weather and in the worst cases can be destroyed. In the past, chemicals have been used at different stages in wine production to try and combat issues arising from nature. However, today there are many wine producers aiming to work with nature instead of against it. We are seeing more and more sustainable practices being used and more and more organic vineyards. In today's episode, Sophie is going to talk to us about some of the weather issues certain wine regions are facing and the impact this is having on wine production. We're then going to talk about how wine producers work with nature and the growth of organic and biodynamic farming practices. So welcome, Sophie. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Charlotte. It's a pleasure. So the first part of this episode, we are going to be talking about the weather. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, this did make me laugh this morning because British people are known for being pretty obsessed with the weather, (laughs) aren't we? Um, And I, I actually Googled this. And apparently, according to a recent poll, 94% of British respondents admitted to have spoken um, spoken about the weather in the past six hours. And 38% said they had spoken about the weather in the last 60 minutes. This is great that we're uh, dedicating part of this episode to, to the weather um, before we, we talk about some interesting farming practices and sustainability. And what we're going to start by doing is touching on some of the 
extreme and challenging weather issues that wine producers are faced with across the world and in lots of different regions. To start with, many of us will have seen the devastating impact that wildfires have had in recent years in both California and Australia. Um, I think everyone who's who's seen the footage will agree it's truly heartbreaking on so many levels like human animal environmental really 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 sad sophie i was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about the impacts that these fires have had on wine production in california and australia how how it's affected the wine industry there yeah of course well i would kind of break it down into kind of two problems that it's caused first of all with the fire and the actual damaging of vineyards But the second impact that most people probably don't know about is something called smoke taint. Um, So this is the smoke from the fires that can often drift. If it happens to kind of linger anywhere, um, the the smoke can actually damage the the grapes and um, will give wine that kind of smoky edge to it, quite an unpleasant acrid smokiness. So even if your vines haven't been affected by the fires themselves, can then become damaged by this smoke taint and you have to basically destroy the grapes that, that you've spent the last year growing. Um, and the smoke, can it can it sp- spread you know, quite far? Are vineyards that are very far away from the actual fires, have they been affected because the smoke sort of has travelled that far? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. So you can, you can have, you know, absolutely no damage by fire or the heat from it um, and be kind of a considerable way away. But if because these fires became so large, the, the smoke, it wasn't just like, you know, when you have a bonfire in your backyard and, you know, you get a waft of smoke in your face. These these are, um, you know, massive billowing clouds of smoke that, that cause a lot of air pollution and can drift quite some distance, which is fine if they keep drifting and, and the, the the wind kind of clears them, then you're usually okay. But if you're very unfortunate and there's kind of stillness in the air um, and these clouds of smoke kind of hang around in your vineyards, uh, it's just as the, the grapes are starting to ripen when kind of the most damage can potentially be caused at this point. That is, that's truly devastating for, mm. for the wine growers and, and all of the, the wine production there. Mm. Have you seen um, a dramatic impact on the, the amount of wines being produced and, and coming out of California and Australia following the fires there? Yeah, so I mean, if we, we take California to start off with, the, the wildfires that happened there kind of at the start of, of 2020, it, ha- um, it wasn't, it was the, the start of uh, 2019 growing season. So there was a series of uh, lightning strikes around August time that caused kind of the first set of fires to break out just as the harvest was was beginning. Uh, and then in late September, a blaze known as the glass fire surged through key winemaking regions, Napa and Sonoma counties. It destroyed about 1,200 buildings, 30 of which were winery and vineyard properties. Since then, kind of some research has been done and the California Wine Institute estimates that as much as 3.7 billion dollars worth of damage has happened because of these fires. So that's taking into account the loss of property, the wine inventory, grapes, and the future sales of wine that those grapes would have made. And just to give you an idea of the actual kind of reduced yield in California, their grape crush report data for 2020 shows that the vintage was down 13.8% from the previous vintage, the 2019 vintage. So that's totaling almost 3.55 million tonnes of grapes that there were in in reduced yield from the previous vintage. We work with a fantastic producer who's very well known called Paul Hobbs, um, who makes amazing wines in both Sonoma and Napa. 
and he was saying that he's lost grapes from two key Sonoma vineyards of his uh, Pinot Noir. Um, that's more than 100 tonnes of, of grapes kind of gone, uh, and his Napa Cabernet as well. So he was still able to make some very, very good wines, but a few key plots he just wasn't able to use because of uh, issues with smoke taint. He's had to basically kind of just destroy the grapes. At the other end of the spectrum to fires, we also have droughts, um, which are an issue in many places in the world. And some wineries can address the challenge of droughts with irrigation, but not all wine regions permit irrigation. And also this can be really, really expensive and it might not be open to all uh, wine producers. Sophie, I wanted to talk to you a bit about South Africa and um, some of the recent droughts that have happened over there. Interestingly, the impact of the droughts hasn't all been negative, has it? Yeah. So if we talk about kind of the three years leading up to 2019, there were um, kind of wide scale droughts in the Western Cape. This meant the yields were down. Um, so that's basically the the amount of grapes harvested. But strangely, when a vine is producing grapes, if it makes fewer of them, it puts more energy into them. So that's why, generally speaking, with wines, a lower yield creates better quality grapes and therefore better quality wine. So because there was this drought, it meant that the yields were lower, but the quality of the wines produced were actually better. So although um, in the Western Cape they were facing a lot of hardships, they um, weren't able to irrigate um, because there was water rationing. So obviously terrible for them because there's this kind of knife edge of not having enough water and perhaps the vines dying because they can't get what they need. But if they can get just about enough, then they produce this incredible yield. So yields were down, but actually the wines were slightly better than in, in previous years. And I, I think I find particularly with the the Chenin Blancs um, from South Africa, when they're really, really concentrated, um, they do produce these beautifully and in, in intense, delicious wines that are, are mm. so different to what sometimes people perceive Chenin Blanc to be. <laughs> yes, yeah. When you get a fantastic Chenin Blanc that's perhaps made with dry land farming, so that's where there's no irrigation. They have this lovely deep root system. Generally, uh, kind of older vines uh, are encouraged. Um, and this is what helps kind of combat things when there is drought. It, it allows the vines to maintain its, its health. You get these lovely concentrated Chenin Blancs. You know, I think people quite mistakenly sometimes think that it's uh, an everyday wine but if you get some very good uh, old vine Chenins they have such concentration and purity you know they rival New Zealand Sauvignon they rival Burgundies you know they're, they're, they're absolutely stunning I can see you're also a fan <laughs> <laughs> I just love wine <laughs> yeah <laughs> but most in front of me and I'll, I'll be like yes I'll enjoy that <laughs> there's, there's always an occasion for a wine whatever it is so in some cooler regions we also face different sorts of challenges from the weather in particular frost and hail can have a big impact on wine production New Zealand and France in particular have suffered in recent years Sophie can you tell me a little bit more about the risks of frost and hail when it can have the biggest impact on the vines and and what kind of techniques are being used in the vineyards to help reduce the impact of these hazards? Yeah, so probably the most dangerous part for for frost is early spring. So just when it starts to warm up, you get these little bits, um, these little bud bursts on the vine. And this is basically where the the new growth is is going to come from. If at that point when it's starting to bud, there's frosts, it's going to 
damage the vine, damage these buds, and that's going to affect the number of bunches of grapes per vine. So that that's why it affects yield and can be a, a really catastrophic event for um, vineyard owners. We've seen this very recently in France. Um, in fact, there was some early frosts in spring, uh, in uh, early April, and they're still trying to work out because um, they're still quite early in the growing season. They're trying to work out the uh, effect that this has had, but they're saying that across France's, France's um, major wine regions from Champagne down to the Languedoc, most places are down 20 to 70 percent on yields. That's what they expect to be down by, which is a huge amount. And Burgundy, obviously one of the iconic French uh, wine regions, is expected to lose 50 percent of this year's crop, which is, you know, quite catastrophic. Terrible. Yeah. And then if that wasn't enough, France has had this catastrophic start to this year. I mean, we all have really with <laughs> COVID and everything else that's been going on. They really didn't need this on, on top of it. Um, at the start of June, there were some really violent hailstorms that damaged vines in in Vivre. So this is where you get these giant hailstones um, firing down from the sky. And, you know, they damage leaves, they damage new growth, um, which, again, is going to affect the um, the vigour of the vine um, and its ability to produce grapes. So we really are at the mercy, aren't we, of nature so often? Mm. That's one of the things that people often forget. And I, I know before we, we hopped on this episode, we, we were discussing, we were saying, you know, when you're in the supermarket and you pick a wine off the shelf, you often forget that it, you know, it comes from the ground and Ooh. it is yeah at the mercy of of all of you know nature's challenges that it that it brings it's um it really it does. There, there are a couple of things that, that we can do. Um, my last trip out to, to Bordeaux, um, there were low-flying helicopters, which they used to try and move the, the airflow so that they don't get these little frost pockets, which is crazy. You, you just got low-flying helicopters going over vineyards. It's, it's like you're, I don't know, in, a, in an airfield somewhere. <laughs> or or um, I went to another vineyard and we sat down for lunch and there were these these booms every 15 seconds um, and it was this this air cannon kind of creating these bursts of air to kind of try and disperse potential hail clouds, which is fine. You know, in Bordeaux, they've got the investment and it is particularly yeah. prone to these sorts of things. But, you know, these are, are man-made inventions, ways to kind of combat nature. Um, and, you know, with the booms of the cannon and the helicopter blades, it did feel like it was this almost combat space. But, you know, they're, they're lucky that they have these things. In other parts of the world, they don't have... Um, uh, the ability to to use, or if you're a small independent um, vineyard grower, then you may not have access to these things. No, I mean both access to a helicopter and also you know <laughs> other techniques are, are are expensive, and and also mm. you don't not often have the time to prepare. You know, a lot of these frost spells that kind of come can happen very very quickly, and and for you know wine producers to kind of mobilise and and mm. to try and mitigate the issues, it, you know, it can be virtually impossible. Yeah. I remember seeing some fantastic um, pictures in the press in uh, early April where all these producers had put out these smudge pots, these um, basically lighting candles in the vineyards to try and warm up the airflow to to protect against frost. And you just saw, you know, these these large swathes of vineyards with these little kind of lit candles everywhere. It was quite beautiful. Yeah, because they light thousands of them next to each individual vine and... Mm. Yeah, to do that, I mean, the labour involved in doing that at short notice is... um, (laughs) It's quite a task. (laughs) Quite a task indeed. Mm. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because 
Life's too short for boring wine. I wanted to touch on now the effect that rising temperatures across the world are having um, on some wine regions. In the future, some wine regions that are producing excellent quality wines now potentially could become too warm. And when temperatures come too warm, it's always a challenge to produce wines that have that lovely balance and tension between you know, ripe fruit flavours and acidity. Mm. And then we have some countries like England, where in the past it wasn't quite warm enough to produce, you know, great quality wines from the grapes. They just couldn't quite get that ripeness. I wanted to ask a bit about your thoughts about the impact of rising temperatures uh, on the wine industry and and in certain regions. So like you said, I mean, we are lucky in England. We are benefiting from global warming. Um, the, the rise by a couple of degrees allows us to achieve better ripeness in the grapes. So, you know, I think this is only going to improve the offering that, that we can give to the, the global marketplace. Um, we're quite a small producer, really, in, in terms of other wine producing regions. We specialise in sparkling wines. You know, we're doing that superbly well, but it's our still wines that we just need a little bit more warmth, especially reds, I feel, in English wines aren't quite there yet on the whole. Whites and rosés are, are drinking beautifully, but um, yeah, I think just having those extra couple of degrees will, will really help mm. and increase the, the kind of the number of grapes that we can grow as well. I think my main concern with the, the global outlook is about increasing alcohol levels because as temperatures warm up, the, gra- the grapes get riper, um, so they're going to have more sugar content, and this often leads to higher alcohol levels. So, you know, I remember 10 years ago, it was quite common to get a 12 and a half, 13% red wine. And I look out there now, and, and actually, it's getting more and more difficult. It's more 13 and a half, 14% reds. You know, gradually, it's kind of making that shift up. And but- at the same time, I, I, I feel there is a bit more of a trend towards red wines that are slightly low, lower in alcohols, mm. you know, slightly lighter. So balancing that is going yeah. to be challenging. Interestingly, like my, my parents definitely prefer like a big, bold, full-bodied <laughs> red wine, which sometimes I'm in the mood for, but I also mm. love something a bit lighter with slightly l- lower alcohol. Yeah, so it's interesting to see that, that those sorts of trends are, are changing as well. Yeah, I think we people are more health conscious these days. And part of that is monitoring what, what we're drinking. I mean, I've had a fascinating chat with, with Dr. John Fritz, who's one of our, our winemakers that we work with. And he's doing some fantastic work in his vineyards with lower alcohol wines. And that's not by stripping the alcohol out by uh, osmosis or um, any of those wonderful techniques. It's by changing the type of yeast um, that's used for fermentation. It's about the, the type of pruning. He's worked out which leaves from the canopy to cut out that would normally add more sugar to the the grapes. You still get amazing concentration of flavour, but lower levels of sugars. So this translates to lower levels of alcohol. So they're not technically what would be classified as a low alcohol wine because they they make about 9% New Zealand Sauvignon and, and Pinot Noir and Rosé. Uh, it's about 9, 9.5%. But that is lower when you compare it to the majority of other New Zealand wines. So you typically have a, a New Zealand Sauvignon, maybe 12.5% ABV, mm. um, you know, 13% Pinot Noir. So that's that's just about what he does in the vineyard and the winery to create natural wines with lower levels of alcohol. And I think that sort of research that he's done on this, he's, he's um, uh, a, a scientist first and foremost, and then became a winemaker. Um, and all the research he's done into this, I think, will become more helpful throughout different countries as 
it gets warmer and alcohol levels increase because people are going to want to mitigate that a little bit. That is so interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, fascinating how, yeah, and I do agree. I think research and technology and, you know, crunching the data will be something that, that wine producers are using um, mm. in the future to kind of combat that the, the rising temperatures and preventing the wines from mm. being, you know, too alcoholic, too much sugar. Uh, that's very, very interesting about mm. the things they're doing there. I want to talk now a bit more about wine producers working with nature. We've, um, mm. we've touched on <laughs> all the things that nature does and, and, and can <laughs> do that make uh, wine producing very difficult. Um, I wanted to talk a bit more now about working with nature. So a bit about organic and biodynamic wines and some other movements in the industry mm -hmm. and uh, touch a little bit on sustainability and packaging. So to start with, could you briefly summarise what we mean when we when we talk about organic farming and, and organic wines? So organic agriculture is about using no man-made fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides or herbicides. It's all about just using natural products um, in order to create a, uh, a good environment for the vine. And we've seen a lot more sort of organic products uh, today in our supermarkets, not just wine, you know, a lot of our, our vegetables and fruits are organic. And there seems to be a bit more of a interest or preference from consumers for organic wines. In your role um, as a buyer, are you seeing are you seeing this generally that consumers are more interested or, or asking more about um, organic wines? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are trying to be more conscientious with their consumer habits. Um, and if we look at the marketplace in general, I mean, back in 2018, it was actually predicted that organic wines would make up 9% of the UK's wine consumption uh, by 2022. And that's up from 5% um, back in, in 2018. And I would suggest that that's pretty much happened. Like in the last two years, we've doubled the size of our organic range at Virgin Wines um, from about 20 products to now over 40 organic products in our range. And that's just the certified organic products because we we do have as quite a trend at the moment for winemakers to work in an organic way but not go through the certification process because it's either they don't have the money to kind of finance it um and there's a, a lot of kind of paperwork involved in that as well so yeah. even I, I i understand in spain a lot, a lot of um producers there practice organics but aren't mm. um certified yeah spain actually has um some of the most the, the largest number of organic vineyards out of all wine producing countries so um you know even the certified organic ones there they're, they're kind of leading the way there excellent and not every region can produce organic wines as easily um especially wet regions it can be much more challenging to manage that but could you talk to me about three wine regions that you particularly enjoy that have lots of organic wines um, that you like to drink? So I'd probably start off um, just because you just touched on on Spain, um, Rioja. Mm. You know, when when people kind of talk about Rioja, they think these kind of oaky, kind of quite rich reds like the Reservas, the Grand Reservas. But actually, there's a whole plethora of wines there to enjoy because I'm I'm a big advocate of kind of a wine for any occasion. So whatever the food, whatever the weather, whatever the kind of company, um, I think there's there's a wine to suit all of it. <laughs> and I love the diversity of Rioja because you've got 
um, you know, lovely dry whites um, through to something a bit more sophisticated. There's oak age that's kind of almost reminiscent of a, a good quality musso. Um, you've got lo- young, lively red wines that are just full of kind of joyous red fruits um, through to ones with a, a touch of oak aging, the kind of criantha, um, through to those big, rich um, heady reds that are perfect for a cold winter's evening or a, a nice, you know, hearty stew. So I, I, I love it just because of the diversity and the fact that they are kind of embracing organic agriculture. They're looking at the land and saying, you know, how can we create the best environment, not only for the vines, but for the people um, that are there as well, you know, the communities, because Rioja is very much about not one person owning big vineyards, but actually small independent growers that sell on their grapes. So it becomes a bit of a, a community affair uh, with with kind of growing of the grapes. Um, we, we've got a fantastic uh, winemaker, Borja Ripper, um, who not only grows his own organic vines, but you know, tries to encourage that within the community as well. So, yeah, I'd say kind of Rioja first and foremost. Secondly, Bordeaux, you know, they've got some fantastic wines there. I'm a big fan of a, a refreshing white Bordeaux. Um, with whites in general, I like them crisp, light, dry. Um, that's probably my, my go-to style. So we work with a fantastic producer, Nicola Allison at Chateau de Say. In fact, she just won a couple of awards for, for her wines. And, and she's also come and spoken to me as well on her. Yeah. Fabulous. She's she's just wonderful. Um, but she's very much into organic agriculture. Um, and the time I've spent out in Bordeaux, there's there's a lot of people who are, you know, undergoing the conversion at the moment. Um, and they're definitely seeing the merits of organic agriculture. And, you know, Bordeaux can can be seen as this quite stuffy, you know, very much set in its old world ways. But there's a lot of very modern um, infrastructure and investment going in there to to make sure that they are you know rolling with the times and doing the very best that, that they can with their you know prestigious sites um so yeah um and then my final one i would say i i love a big red so chili for me produces some fantastic reds and it is quite an ideal climate for using um, organic agriculture because on one side of it you've got the Pacific Ocean the other side of it you've got the the Andes Mountains and it creates this like little kind of natural corridor so it, it keeps out a lot of natural pests it's got a quite a, a dry climate so you haven't got the worries about kind of what you were saying earlier about it sometimes when it's a bit too wet it's quite difficult to maintain mm. uh, organic agriculture so it, it's almost got this kind of it's, it's a couple of steps up the ladder just with the natural kind of terroir that, that it has um and and i just and lots I love of sun the red of course ones. absolutely yes <laughs> so it's just for me it produces fantastic red wines and great white wines as well um but it's their reds that, that i particularly enjoy have you had a trip over to chile yet i not recently i mean at the moment most traveling's been uh, been delayed <laughs> because of obvious reasons um but the last time i was there was back in 2012 um, where I, I had the the very great opportunity um, of being able to visit uh, some biodynamic vineyards as well, which it, it absolutely opened up my eyes to it. And biodynamic wines um, go a step further than organic wines. So they take a kind of holistic 
ecological and ethical approach towards farming, um, embrace sort of spiritual principles, um, and also the astronomical calendar for farming. And this is what I wanted to, to speak to you about. There are lots of very fascinating and quite unusual preparations that are used in biodynamic farming. <laughs> and I know you've witnessed a few of these. So um, I'd love you to tell me a bit more about some of these practices and, and how they combine elements of, of nature as well. Yeah. So one of the things I find really interesting about biodynamics is that it actually predates organic agriculture. And yeah, like you're saying, it's, it's got this kind of holistic approach to farming. So it looks at the lunar calendar. And when I describe biodynamics to people, it's probably um, a bit of a weird way, but I, I kind of feel like it's witchcraft. Like when, when when I was looking at it and I was finding out all about it, I was like, how how is this? How does this work? So one of the things that, that people will probably have heard of is the idea of preparation 500. So this is where um, cow horns are filled with manure and then buried under the ground over winter. And then come next spring, the manure is removed from them, they're mixed with water to create a spray for the vines, which is supposed to help the soil st structure in some amazing way because the ground has become infused with the manure, so it has some remembrance of the soil structure, which which to me just sounds a bit, a bit mad, but it it produces these amazing wines. And um, another mad, crazy thing that I saw when I was out in Chile was this, uh, like this tall wood mast with um, these two kind of what looked like sacks hanging from the top of it. And I asked, I said, what, what's that? And uh, the chap said, it's it's a deer's bladder that is filled with certain preparations. So I remember saying something like chamomile flowers and uh, a few other bits and bobs. And, and he said, the, the idea is that they take the bladder from the deer and hang it in the sun for six months. So it is, um, it's about the, the spirit, the live, liveliness, the energetic spirit of the deer infuses what's inside and then the sun um, brings something else to it and then they bury it under the ground for another six months um, and then they make it into a spray. And I remember thinking, how how is this science? <laughs> it just doesn't sound like science. But but the one thing I will say that actually did make sense to me, um, and this is why I started thinking maybe biodynamics isn't witchcraft. Maybe there's something here. Um, is talking about the the lunar calendar, and we're all very aware that the the moon has impact on bod big bodies of water. You know, it affects our tides. You know, I know people often say like, oh, it's a full moon, the crazies will be out. Like it, people kind of do feel like the, the moon influences us in some way um, and they were saying that they only prune the vines at certain points in the lunar calendar because it affects the water in the vines so like the the sap levels so there are certain points in the lunar calendar where it's pulling the sap out so if you prune you'll find that the vines it's called like the crying vine or the weeping vine they have like little tears of sap where you've made the cuts and they say that this is actually a waste of energy you're you're depleting the vine so if you do it at these certain times um, when the sap is drawn down into the roots then you don't have that waste of energy and that suddenly made sense to me because I thought well we know that the moon affects water we can see it in the tides that is just, you know, we we accept that without without question now. So why wouldn't it affect something on a much, much smaller scale? And that was the point where I started thinking, actually, there is something here. Um, and I don't think I'm, I'm alone with that, because when you look at the number of um, producers now investing in biodynamic agriculture, um, I mean, something that really surprised me was that Cristal, one of the world's most premier champagnes, is now 
biodynamic as of the 2012 vintage. It's 100% biodynamic. So even they must be thinking that there's something here. It's not all witchcraft and, and weirdness. There is genuinely something that happens in the vineyards that, that creates this amazing uh, ecosystem and very healthy vines uh, that ultimately produce exceptional wines. And as you've touched on, I mean, there's quite a range of different practices that are involved in, in biodynamics. Mm. And I think I've sort of noticed um, when I've been visiting vineyards across the world that, that some vineyards and, and some wine producers just adopt certain practices that they sort of mm. believe in and others sort of take take on a, a lot more of them. Um, but mm. there's sort of little bits that they can dip in and out of. But but I've seen, you know, a lot of them following the lunar calendar and um, using it to decide on the date for, for picking the grapes as well. Mm. So it I mean, it is fascinating, really, really fascinating, something I, I definitely want to to read more on and, and, and visit more biodynamic vineyards and, and, you know, taste the taste the wines and, and think about how those practices can can affect the wine. I mean, I think some people are quite cynical when it comes to biodynamic biodynamic wines, because I mean, obviously, it takes a lot of effort to to keep up. Um, with all the different biodynamic practices, it's it's very hands on, it's very labour intensive. And when you look at any agricultural practice where um, people are investing more time, you usually get a better quality product from the end of it. So is it, mm. some people say, is it necessarily the biodynamic practices or is it just that they're very well cared for vineyards and wines where a lot of time has been spent on, you know, creating the, the, the perfect grape and, um, you know, harvesting in the right ways and, and things like that. So there, there could be an argument to be made both ways. There's also been quite a buzz about natural wines as well over the last few years. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about what your experience has been with natural wines. Yeah, I think there's definitely been uh, an uptake of people showing more of an interest in and wanting to, to try these wines. I mean, at, at their core, they are about a true expression of uh, a vineyard. So you know, it's all about natural fermentation, no filtration, um, minimal interference. So you can get these really amazing wines that really show the the terroir and, and the grape at its at its very best. But you have to be a very confident winemaker and a very good winemaker to to enter into that because a lot of the things that that winemakers will do. So I think one of the the key things with natural wines is that people. Um, say, oh, they're they're lower in 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 sulfites, so they're they're better for me. What they don't know, is sulfites are actually uh, a byproduct of fermentation. So a lot of natural wines will still contain some natural sulfites, mm. but the reason for it then being added is it kills off unwanted bacteria and it acts as a, an antioxidant in the winery. So it actually serves a really important purpose, and it doesn't, you know, for for most people, it, it, they won't notice it. It means that the wine maintains, um, you know, a certain quality level. So I have and it's found freshness that, as well. Yeah, ex exactly. And you want a fresh bottle of wine on your table, and and it'll it'll last for longer. <laughs> you know, if you've popped a couple of bottles in a wine rack and you pull them out a year later, you still want to be able to to drink them. So the, in my experience, the quality can fluctuate with with natural wines. That's part and parcel of what they are. Um, you know, without any additives, without any of those kind of um, careful practices to to kind of really keep the wine at its best for, for the longest, it, it can be a bit hit and miss. And I've, I've tried some fantastic mm -hmm. ones. I've also had some bad experiences with some as well. Um, and it's the same with kind of like orange wines. Um, again, I've tried some that are great and some that are 
um, very unique is how how I would call them. Um, <laughs> so I, I love the fact that people are experimenting and that the, the winemakers have the confidence to kind of show these wines at their you know, these are these are basically like naked wines. There's there's nothing there to kind of embellish them other than you know the wine itself. So it, it's a very confident stance and interesting as a as a consumer to be able to try them and compare them with other wines. But I, I don't see it as a force that's going to take over the whole wine industry. And like in twenty years' time, we're all going to be drinking natural wines. Uh, I, I just don't think that's that's where it's going to end up. <laughs> yeah, as you say, my experience has been mixed. Um, I love mm. what natural wines stand for. I love that the idea of using less products um, in the winery and, and really seeing the wine in its um, you know natural form. But you know, as you've mentioned, when it comes to bottling and you know sending it off to restaurants and whatnot, um, because mm-hmm. there's no nothing there to to help preserve the wine, there isn't a little bit of often there isn't any sulfur added. The wines, you know, they're, they're very much alive and they're a little bit unpredictable. So yeah. um, you can have very very mixed and different experiences with them. You know, it's a little sometimes a little bit of a lottery when you open a bottle mm. if it's going to be sort of life-changingly amazing or if it's just going to taste uh, <laughs> a little bit too funky but yeah as I say I, I, I like what it stands for and I think um, mm. the whole movement has been good for the for, for the wider industry in making um, wine producers you know really think about what what do, what do they need to to add in the winery and mm. you know being a bit more cautious about about adding things unnecessarily yeah I think it ties into this sort of wider movement we were talking about earlier that you know people want products that are you know healthy and more genuine and sort of mm. more reflective of where they come from um but no it's a it's a fine balance you you want something to still be delicious um yeah over over and above your principles I think absolutely it's like what you were saying earlier as well there's a lot of winemakers out there who kind of pick and choose what what they want to do so they might not be a hundred percent in the organic category they might not be a hundred percent in the natural wine category but they they choose the best practices so they you know we work with a lot of independent uh wine growers who will quite often do natural fermentation like they won't start the fermentation themselves with you know yeast that they brought in they allow the natural yeast of the vineyard to kind of set off the fermentation in its own kind of timely manner and they will add as as little as possible and and work with it in a very natural way but they might then choose to you know add that little bit of sulfur just to, to to keep it fresh but um you know way under the the maximum uh, limits but they, they therefore wouldn't be able to call it a natural wine and and you know same thing with with organics they can do everything in the winery in an organic way but if there happens to be a really bad year really wet year and they need to use something to kind of stave off uh, an infection or a fungus or something like that they have got the option there if they really need to 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 use it in small quantities just to stem any possible problems that that they might have and then go back to the organic agriculture after that so you know i think having the autonomy to to pick and choose what suits you what suits your vineyards is actually a really good thing for not only the producers but the consumers as well talking of some trends that we've seen um what are your thoughts about alternative packaging for wines we've seen kind of cans really sort of explode on the scene um Hmm. the bag in the box is is making a bit of a comeback uh, there are some sort of trendy box wines now on the market where people are putting much more effort into the 
uh, creating, you know, beautiful boxes with lots of artwork. Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts about these sorts of different packaging and, and yeah, from a sustainability perspective? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting um, part of the marketplace at the moment. I think there will always be the want for glass bottles. And I mean, I remember when screw caps started coming in in a big way. And the amount of people saying, no, I don't want a screw cap wine because I, th- there is something about that little pop of a cork when you when you pull it out that, that, that is part of the joy of, of experiencing wine, I think. And it's intrinsically what people kind of think of. So even just going part from a, a cork. Yeah, exactly. So even going from that to a screw cap was almost a step too far for some people. So then telling them, actually, have you tried this bag in a box wine <laughs> or this can? I'm not sure how they're going to react to it. But I think actually, if anything, this year with, you know, the fact that people are wanting to socialize outdoors in groups, you know, small groups on like a nice picnic or or something like that with with five friends, actually having a can of something or a bag in a box makes it easier than having to carry a couple of bottles of wine. So I can I can totally see why this is a growing industry, especially at the moment. Um, and there is something about the freshness of, of having wine back in the box. It, it's actually um, in a completely inert vessel. You can remove any oxygen, so you don't need um, to inject any, any um, soft oxide into it or anything like that to keep it fresh. So it actually, it, from a technical perspective, it works. It's just it doesn't quite feel the same and when we're thinking about sustainability ultimately glass is recyclable so a glass bottle when we're talking about that aspect isn't so bad for the environment and if you're shipping wines over to the UK obviously shipping lots of glass the carbon footprint isn't great on something like that so again that's where cans and bag in the box can be beneficial but you could also ship wine over to the UK in tanks and then bottle it here in the UK which is a lot better for um, the environment, it's better for the carbon footprint. Um, and it's also good giving business to to the UK bottling plants to allow them to do that over here. And, and we actually have very tight controls over the quality of the work. So you can get very, very good wines bottled here in the UK, but shipped over from other places uh, around the world. And I would suggest maybe that's quite a, a sustainable way of doing it. So yeah, I think it's very interesting to have all these options uh, I've even seen paper wine bottles uh, are starting yeah. to to come out now as well. But I'm not sure how recyclable they would be because they have to be lined with like a, a little bit of plastic. So I, I, I think that's almost trying to tie into the sustainable movement. But I'm not sure that we've really got the the ability to then deal with that here in the UK. Whereas, you know, everyone can sling a bo- glass bottle in their um, in their recycling bin and they know it will go and be recycled. Sophie, thank you so much for sharing all your really, really interesting insights into uh, the wine industry. You're talking <laughs> about the, the weather and, and nature um, and also about all these interesting movements um, with organics and biodynamics. Very important final question for you. We're recording on a Friday. I want to know what you're going to have a glass of at the end of today. (laughs) That is an extremely important question. (laughs) Uh, Well, at the moment, I have uh, a bottle of Hungarian uh, dry Tokai in my fridge which which i started last night so i might i might just have another glass of that i am also having some some celebrations over the weekend so uh there might even be a, a bottle of champagne i'm i'm a big fan of champagne um i know it, it's 
often seen as a celebratory drink, but I, I think there's nothing wrong that of just celebrating the small wins, like getting to the end of a week uh, and, and just enjoying a nice little glass yourself. It's just, yeah, one, one of my favourite ways to end a week. I couldn't agree more. Why not open a <laughs> bottle of fizz to celebrate just getting to the end of the week? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, and, and you know, there's, there's something very enjoyable and and. It, it just makes me happy on the inside, you know, when you hear it pop uh, as you open it and then the bubbles fizzing away um, and it dancing around on your palate. And it's always fresh and lively because obviously champagne has that gorgeous high acidity uh, and then you've got the richness of the flavours. Uh, for me, it's just the, the perfect interplay. So, yeah, why, why not finish the week on a, a glass of champagne? Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. That's all from us today. Thank you for tuning into A View from a Vineyard. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A View from the Vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.